Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. All right, well, we're back here in uh, Acts chapter 16, and I really think this is one of the coolest passages in Scripture. I probably say that a lot. <laughs> but this, the stories in this are so good. They're so fascinating. There's lots of twists and turns, little details. Last Sunday, um, Peter spoke mostly out of the first half of Acts 16 uh, about following the voice of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, I'm going to focus a little bit more on the second half, but I, I do want to just sort of rewind a little bit by way of introduction. So would you please turn, if you're not there, to Acts 16, which I believe is on page 925 of your pew Bible. Yeah. All right. Now, I mentioned uh, we're going to be doing like sort of a half sermon and half Q&A this morning. And so um, I want to focus on the first half of our time really on two points that I don't expect would come up during the Q&A. And, uh, and so I want, to, I want to first talk about those a little bit. So the first point is geographical and the second point is social. So I'll spend a few minutes on those and then um, we'll, we'll uh, open it up for some questions. All right. So first, geographically, it's important to mention that Acts 16 is the first time, the first time in recorded history, that the gospel spreads into what is now modern-day Europe. So Philippi was a Roman colony located up in northern Greece. Now the interesting thing is, is that Paul and his companions, they want to preach more locally, they want to preach closer to their home, uh, but the Holy Spirit had other plans. I'm going to do something that I've seen my African-American brothers do every now and then when they're preaching and say, turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, neighbor. The, Holy the Holy Spirit had other plans. Amen. It says in verse 5 that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they just, they didn't know what to do. They just kept going further west. And then look with me at verse, verse 7. It says, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now this phrase, the Spirit of Jesus, that's just like a wonderfully Trinitarian way of referring to the Holy Spirit, isn't it? But it's really, it's appropriate, because if we remember, when Jesus gave the Great Commission to the church, he says, you know, go make disciples of all nations. The last thing he says is, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, right? And so now we see how the early church understood Jesus' promise to be fulfilled. They said, if the Holy Spirit is with us, then the Spirit of Jesus is with us. Right? If the promise of the Father is with us, then Jesus is among us. That's how Jesus continued to be what Calvin called the perpetual governor of his church. Amen? Now, as Peter mentioned last week, we're not told exactly how the Holy Spirit blocked their way, whether it was by circumstances or persecution or a prophetic word or by some kind of inner impression, but one way or another, the Holy Spirit said, nope, not that direction. So finally, in verse 9, he gives a positive word. After all their wandering, Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man asking for help. And uh, you can see the map here of their journey uh, this is Paul's second missionary journey, and so it actually starts over here in Antioch, in Syrian Antioch, and then you just kind of see they're just kind of winding west. You know, they want to go and preach in Cappadocia, Galatia, they try to go to Asia, they, 
you know, try to go up to Bithynia, and, and the Holy Spirit's just blocking the way. Now, what's amazing, and what we don't normally think about, is by the time they get to Troas over here, um, right over by the ocean, <laughs> um, and then hitch a boat over to Macedonia, uh, they've actually walked 400 miles on foot. I mean, is that crazy or what? Now, can you imagine trusting the Spirit enough to walk 400 miles and then charter a boat? That's pretty amazing. Now, I think it's significant that they received direction from Jesus while they were in the midst of obeying something he had already commanded them. So they weren't just sort of waiting on their butt for him to speak. Jesus had already told them to go make disciples of all nations and while they were in the midst of obeying this command, he gave them more specific instructions. Did you notice that? Oftentimes, I think we want the specific instructions, specific answers from God, but we bypass obeying the things that he's already told us to do. Right? So we want God to be our palm reader, not our father. But it doesn't usually work that way. I've heard the analogy that it's hard to steer a ship that's not moving. Right? We move, we move on what God has already told us to do, and then the Lord can direct us through that rudder. Likewise, if you want to hear specific words from the Holy Spirit, it's best to begin by obeying the words He's already spoken to you. Peter mentioned this last week. Maybe there's something that the Lord has been bringing up in your life time and time again, and you're like, I want to hear more from the Lord, I want to grow my relationship with Him, but He's calling you to deal with that thing, and I want to encourage you to do that and to bring that before your brothers and sisters and ask them for help. And then, that way, when the Holy Spirit speaks more specifically, we might be ready to trust and obey again. Amen? Amen. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, what happened to, like, all these regions of Asia that the Holy Spirit said no about, right? And uh, if you know something about history, you'll know that actually the church in Asia was stronger than the church in Europe for the first several hundred years of Christian history. Um, but, um, but Paul is told no, but that doesn't mean that there was no mission there. Um, in brief, the Holy Spirit had a plan for them too. And actually, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and you see this general epistle that Peter has addressed to these churches in Asia, listen to this. He says... Um, that he's speaking to the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these are all the areas that Paul and his companions originally wanted to preach. So the Holy Spirit did want churches there, but it didn't have to be Paul. right? It doesn't always have to be Paul. It doesn't always have to be you. We have to act on the things that the Lord has given us, recognizing we're finite beings. We're finite creatures. We'll follow the Lord, ask Him to preach where he wants us to preach, share where he wants us to share, invite that person to dinner that we feel he's moving on our heart to invite, and really trust that the Lord has plans for the rest of the people. All right, so my first point is geographical. Because I think if we understand the geography of Paul's second missionary journey, it helps us to understand how radical the call is to follow the Holy Spirit. Right? How far he might just lead us. Now my second point is social. Because Acts 16 is the story of the gospel just breaking social barriers, all kinds of social barriers. Some of you might know that uh, it was common for Jewish men at this time to pray this prayer every morning, thanking God that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. 
Now this prayer, it was widely used at the time, widely used, and in fact, it's still used by many to this day. So in view of this context, I think Acts 16 takes on a whole new meaning because it tells about the conversion of a Gentile, a Roman jailer, a slave girl, and a prominent businesswoman named Lydia. Did you notice that? All three of those things. This prayer would have been ringing in the minds of these early Jews who read this passage. So at the beginning of this passage, all three of these characters in different ways were outsiders to the family of God, outsiders of the promises of the new covenant. But by the end, in verse 40, they can be called brothers or brothers and sisters. So Acts 16 is really testifying to the existence of a completely new kind of spiritual community, one that had no precedent in the history of religion, or in the world for that matter, where barriers of race and class and gender are abolished in light of the gospel of Jesus, who died equally for all people who needed him. Amen? We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that the gospel is not just spiritually significant. It's like this nice private thing that lets you have good feelings like when you're alone and you pray to God. No, it's socially explosive. At this time in Acts 16, Paul had only very recently, historically, he had only very recently written these words to the Galatians. He said this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So I hope you can see how far Paul had gone from these prayers that he'd learned as a child. Far from, you know, far, far from thanking God that he's not a Gentile or a slave or a woman. This is the exact opposite. He's like, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. We all need Jesus, right? And we all get to be a part of his one family through him, right? So a completely new kind of social community that was forming. Now, it didn't mean that there was no such thing as ethnic identity in the early church. Sometimes we use the word colorblind, like, I'm colorblind, I don't see that sort of thing. That's not how the early church operated. They recognized that there was actually important differences, and, and different ethnicities and cultures had different things to kind of bring in their worship before God in the book of Revelation. They weren't colorblind. Paul was actually very proud of his Jewish uh, heritage, of his ethnic roots. But of course... Um, Th these things did not matter in terms of like, oh, now, well, now this ethnic group has special priv privileges when it comes to God over this ethnic group. That just wasn't the way that it worked. The gospel had abolished these things. And of course, there were also women as distinct from men. Now, um, the, 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 the point is, is that um, they were all accepted as full members of the family, full members of the Christian community with equal status before God. Now, you'll notice there were also slaves among the early Christians. Now, it's true that slavery at that time was different um, than slavery as we understand it. I mean, for one thing, it wasn't race-based. And for another thing, it usually wasn't lifelong. So those are, those are two pretty big differences. But aside from these cultural considerations, the unique thing is that in, in the early church, the slaves worshipped right alongside the free. And everyone called one another brothers and sisters. There wasn't preferential treatment. They knew that they were on equal footing before the Father. That's why Clement, the bishop of Rome, who was writing around 95 AD, could say that slaves are men like ourselves. 
And he goes on to explain that it wasn't uncommon for local churches to collect money in order to buy the freedom of Christian slaves. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for somebody to decide to sell themselves in slavery in order to purchase the freedom of a brother or a sister. Following the example of the Lord Jesus. Now, interestingly, there's evidence that um, there's evidence to suggest that the famous runaway slave Onesimus, who is mentioned in the New Testament epistle Philemon, there's evidence to suggest that he later became the bishop in Ephesus. And so he went from a slave to a brother to a bishop in a relatively short amount of time. Now, they were just thinking of these things in a completely new kind of way. So as I mentioned, there's three conversions in this story. There's a conversion of a woman, a slave. Now, it actually doesn't mention the specific conversion. It just mentions the slave girl's deliverance from the evil spirit. But I think based on you know, similar encounters in the gospel, um, it's, a, it's a decent assumption to say that she um, maybe joined the family of faith. And then this Gentile, this Roman jailer. So the gospel has the power to unite all such people in one community. Okay, so that's just a bit of an introduction um, to, uh, to this passage from a geographical and a social lens, but I've saved most of the details for our Q&A, and so I want to open it up now for a few questions. Now, you just read um, Acts 16, 16 through 40. There's a lot of interesting details. I want to just give you just one more minute, just to refresh your mind, just to pass your eyes over the passage one more time. So, if you've got a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, turn to page 925, Acts 16, beginning on verse 16. I'm just going to give you a minute to just look back over and recall to mind what were your questions or what were the things that you thought were really interesting here. Okay, let's start with the story about this slave girl in verses 16 through 24. What struck you as interesting or significant about this story? What questions did you have? Yeah, Jed. What Right. 
Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because Luke um, just mentioned she had this spirit that brought her owners a lot of money via fortune-telling. He never gives his opinion one way or another whether it was accurate. But she obviously knew something about Paul and Silas, which is interesting, right? So it does seem to be that there's some kind of acknowledgement that there is other power out there. It could be evil power, right? Um, and that it was actually oppressive to her. Um, so even though it might have kind of been, a, been somewhat of a gift or something like that, or that's, that's what her owners viewed, viewed it as, and that's maybe, maybe it was an important part of her identity, um, it was viewed as a negative thing from the Apostle Paul's perspective and from a biblical perspective. Now the interesting thing is, is that um, specifically in the Greek what it says is that she had the spirit of Python. Now, if you look at the Greek, it's really, it's really, really interesting. And um, what was going on is that they weren't that far from the Oracle of Delphi. And the Oracle, um, the Oracle of Delphi was said to be guarded by this serpent called Python. And um, there was a lot of women devotees, kind of prophetesses, um, Pythonesses, they called them. And they would you know, prophesy or they would fortune tell her. It was, it was said that they had clairvoyance. And um, actually, some historians say that what they did was um, uh, ventriloquism. Like, they would actually throw their voices into other things and would say things. So it's actually possible that when this woman was following uh, around Paul and his companions, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way to salvation, that she wasn't speaking that by her mouth. She was sort of throwing her voice to other things. So it was this weird, local, kind of cultic practice. And um, I, I, think, I think for two reasons, um, it, says here that, uh, it says here that Paul was annoyed. The Greek could also mean disturbed. I think that's probably a better translation here. Oftentimes the translators will put it that way. He, I think he was disturbed for her and also was disturbed at the association with this new church, this new faith community that was emerging with this weird sort of Pythoness's spirit of Python ventriloquism thing. He's like, no, no, no. <laughs> These things are not the same. In fact, this phrase, most high God, was used by Jews for Yahweh, but it was used by Greeks for, for Zeus. And so there was this weird sort of syncretism between this cult she was a part of and what was going on with Christianity. And Paul was like, no. And in fact, I mean, it seems like something valid or something significant was going on. It wasn't just sort of an act in ventriloquism because Paul literally casts an evil spirit out of her. And I, I just remember, um, this is just, it, it's nothing to fool with. There is this kind of syncretism and stuff like this, even in Tallahassee. I remember talking to a Christian friend a few years ago, um, and he and his wife were talking about how they were at this party, and there was this palm reader, and everyone was going and getting advice, and then they, you know, had this very specific, powerful experience that they wanted to share with me about that. I'm like, brother, man, you got to read the word. You're supposed to keep far away from this kind of stuff. You know, this salt water is not supposed to blend with the fresh water. Some of you guys this morning might have had some sort of weird, you know, encounters with the occult before, you know, tinkered with that at some point in your life or maybe even recently. I just want to encourage you that the scripture says, no, that is not good power. That is not going to have a positive influence in your life. It's going to lead to your oppression. So I want to encourage you, if that's, if that's you this morning, there's, there's prayer ministers in the back during communion, or maybe grab a friend and ask somebody to pray for you, because I think part of what's going on here is that there's a separation of light from darkness. Right? There's a separation of the true God from this kind of weird cultic stuff, and Paul wants to make that very clear.
Yeah. Any other questions about him? Yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting. Um, she, she, I think she's asking um, whether she had a choice in the matter in terms of giving up that spirit, or whether she had to want that freedom too. I, I think it, it could there could be like different degrees of this. I think there's clearly times in the Bible where people have no choice; they're, they're, they've lost their identity. Think of the man who told Jesus his name was Legion. He didn't even know his own name. He's like bound by chains, you know, and it's. It's weird stuff. I mean, it's Halloween kind of stuff, but like, there's no way he was going to be like, Jesus, please heal me, you know? Um, and so I think, you know, that when it comes to deliverance ministry, sometimes there's a, there's a bypass of the will because it's like, hey, this person is in complete bondage even of their will. But I, I, I've seen other circumstances where, um, especially when somebody feels like they have some kind of gift or something that's special about them, even though it's contrary to, to God's way, they're reticent to even want to give that up. And I've, I've seen that on several occasions. So I think there's maybe kind of you know, degrees of this. And I think there does come a point with some people where they might not be like possessed, you know, you know not even acting on their own will, but they, they're willfully dabbling in these things. And so maybe the hardest hurdle to get over in those instances is, is actually the hurdle of the will. F.F. F. Bruce gives this really great quote because, you know, her, um, her owners get really mad at her. And Bruce says this. He said, when Paul exercised the spirit that possessed her, he exercised their source of income as well. Right. So they don't like that. I mean, there's no fury like the fury of a pimp. <laughs> and that's what's going on here. This, 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 this slave girl's owner, are, they're acting like spiritual pimps. Right, and they're like, I don't like this. And you notice when they go and accuse, um, when they go and accuse Paul and Silas in front of the magistrates, they don't actually say what their real issue is, do they? <laughs> no, they're pretty slick about it, right? You know, they say, number one, these men are Jews. It's like, you know, that better be relevant, right? <laughs> There's some some latent anti-Semitism going on here. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined together in attacking them. And so they're saying, hey, these guys are, these guys are calling a, causing a ruckus. They're, they're, they're advocating practices. They're trouble. And so they should be disciplined. Now, it's interesting because um, a few verses earlier in, in chapter 16, verse 10, is the first time in the narrative that Luke is actually personally present. He starts using words like we and us. Luke actually seems to have been um, from around the city of Philippi or around the city of Troas. And, uh, and he knows a lot of details about this town. So this word, this word that's translated magistrates, it it's actually refers to two specific people. He uses a technical word in Greek. He clearly understands there are two different rulers that judge in this place. And also, this is exactly what would have happened to somebody who was disturbing the peace. They would have been beaten with, with rods. In fact, the magistrates 
had these attendants with them that just carried these bundles of sticks and they would just hold them. And it was just sort of a visual representation of like, don't disturb the order or you might get beaten with these things, right? And so, um, so it's, it's cool. We begin to get even some more special details that come from Luke actually being personally present and know what's going on. After they leave Philippi, actually Luke sticks around. He doesn't join back up with them again until, um, I think it's Acts 20. And so, um, so man, there's, there's so much more that we could say about um, the interaction with this slave girl. But um, eventually what ends up happening, of course, is that um, Paul and Silas, they're, they're beaten with rods. This would, I mean, this would have been a very, very serious beating, guys. I mean, like, they would have been bloodied. It would have been gross. Uh, and they're put in prison. They're shackled. Their feet are shackled. They go there, and then we come to the next scene in the story. So I'm going to open this up for question. Of course, very famously, you know, says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Just the beautiful, beautiful images of these of these men who are suffering so greatly. So their, their physical suffering is so great, and yet they still have the joy of the Lord in the midst of their suffering. And that ends up being a witness to the prisoners who are listening to them. Now, what uh, what thoughts or questions did you have about this section of the passage? This section dealing with the Philippian jailer. The Roman, yeah. Wow. Sometimes a preacher should say, I don't know. <laughs> and this is one of those times. I don't know how common earthquakes were. Um, but I, even if they were common, I would say this was conspicuous timing. <laughs> um, and I think that's oftentimes the way that prayer works too. Sometimes there's this like, there's no other explanation. This had to be prayer. This had to be the hand of God. And sometimes there's this sort of um, sovereign ordering of circumstances where you're like, that's pretty conspicuous. Mm-hmm. I just prayed about that, and mm-hmm. now something very interesting has happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think um, clearly the Philippian jailer thought, wow, your God gave you the opportunity to escape, mm-hmm. right? And then famously, they actually chose not to. They actually chose to stay there, which is a very, um, you might say, cruciform thing to do. Right, because it, it actually would have cost this Roman jailer his life if they would have left. So there's a sense in which they're offering their life for his. They didn't know they were going to be let out the following day. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah. I was, uh, I was wondering when the, when the uh, jailer asked, why must I do to be saved? He was thinking about just being saved. What must I do to be yeah, was he Was he thinking about being saved to be executed? Um, I, I don't think so, um, even though I could, see, I could see why you might wonder that. The only reason why I don't think so is because this question, what must I do to be saved, was actually a common question around the Mediterranean at the time, both among Jews and among Gentiles. Um, sometimes it was a way, you'd ask a teacher, what must I do to be saved? You would ask him that, and, and you, what you'd be asking for is like, what's the essence of your teaching? You know, tell me, tell me your understanding of this. So it was like a way of asking somebody who you thought might be informed. Now, he probably wouldn't be viewing salvation in the same kind of like Jewish way. What must I do to be saved, you know, and, and be among the righteous at the resurrection at final judgment? 
Like, he wasn't thinking that. But it seems like what's going on with this guy is he's so struck. I mean, number one, he's been sitting there listening to these guys. I mean, just think about his experience. He's sitting there listening to these guys that he'd just seen beaten with rods. You know, he shackled their feet. They're in prison, and they're singing this hymn. I mean, that's got to have an impact on you, right? And then the earthquake happens, and he's like, and he, you know, he wakes up, he realizes they could be gone, and, and what, does he, what does he see? He sees the people that he's in prison, the people that are, you know, that are in shackles that have, that have been let out, and they're, they're reassuring him. You know, it's all right, don't, don't kill yourself. Because he would have been killed anyway. And so he's sort of saving himself the time, saving himself the shame. And it seemed like that action just had kind of a catalytic moral um, impact on the man. He said, <laughs> like, whoever you guys are worshiping, I need to know something about that God. Right? Because I've never seen people act like this before. And so he asked them, what must I do to be saved? Yeah, Benjamin. Yeah, it's, it, sounds, it seems to me like they were just chained up. They, they had already received their be beatings, but um, I don't know if you've ever tried to sleep with chains on your ankles. I haven't, but I'm sure it's not super comfortable. I'm sure they didn't feel like, um, like comfy in there that the red carpet had been rolled out for them. It's interesting. One of the, one of the details that were given uh, in this text is that... Um, they spoke the word to them. Uh, uh, they spoke the word to the jailer. He brought them to their house. Verse 33. He took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And then listen. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family. So they washed. He washed their wounds. And they washed his sins. Right? That's something that John Chrysostom said in the 4th century. He washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes and was himself washed from his sins. Now, um, I, I want to point out that when he, when he asked, what must I do to be saved? It says in verse 31, they gave him this answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So he's told, like, this is the key thing. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him, right, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the importance of believing the gospel, of, of affirming that what God has provided for you through Jesus is true. But I think it's also important to note that in the book of Acts, we constantly see these three things bundled together. Repentance, faith, and baptism. They're sort of bundled together and almost treated as one activity. Now, I think, you know, this side of Luther, it's important to note that the thing that we believe is the crucial, the critical thing is faith. And I think there's good biblical evidence for saying that. But for the early church, they viewed baptism as just a part of that equation. I mean, it, you know, the way that some people treat the sinner's prayer, that's how they treated baptism. Like, this is, this is just what you do. This is how, how you enter the family of God. This is how this relationship starts. And even with him, now Peter doesn't mention repentance. It's all, I mean, uh, Paul doesn't mention repentance. It's often mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. But it does say that he brought them into his house. 
Right? And it does say that he washed their wounds. To me, those are two signs of repentance. If this guy was truly sorry, uh, 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 sorry toward them and sorry toward the Lord, I think we see evidence of that. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, Mike, and you're a close reader of Scripture. I mean, I think that this sort of um, passion narrative and resurrection narrative and the sort of similarities in their story, some of those um, resonances we see them in this passage. I, I just want to say as a side thing, because I'm sure some people here are curious, this is one of three, maybe four places in Scripture where a household baptism is mentioned. Actually, just a few verses earlier, earlier um, Lydia and her household is baptized. And sometimes people wonder, okay, well, does this sort of solve the, the debate between do we baptize children, do we baptize babies, or, or is, it, is it's baptism just an adult thing? And I, I don't think that these instances uh, definitively solve that debate. But as an Anglican, let me just give you two things to chew on. <laughs> One thing is that um, in, the, you know, in the Jewish context, um, their, their sort of entrance right into the people of God for children, for boys was circumcision, and circumcision was given to boys on the eighth day. So they viewed this as just something that the people of God do. So you're, they had a much more of, a, of an understanding of, you know, our household, this is the faith of our household. We think much more individualistically than they did at the time. And also, just to mention uh, with the case with Lydia, when there, was a, when there was somebody who was a proselyte, they hadn't converted to Judaism yet. They were actually baptized, <laughs> Um, there was this kind of baptism that they went through. They weren't, you know, they weren't circumcised. But what, in those proselyte baptisms, we do have evidence that the children were baptized as well. So I, you know, I don't think this is sort of like a definitive, like solves the debate kind of thing, because I actually think there's genuine, um, good biblical support, and there's a robust discussion on this topic. But uh, you know, to me, I kind of put those two pieces together and say. What's the way that they would have taken Christian baptism just automatically, um, you know, in light of those things? Yeah, do you have something to say, Chad? So a two-part question related to that. So yeah. in this cultural context, how did they define household at yeah. the time? Yeah. And then second, there seems to be like an individual decision here by the jailer that carries through yeah. the entire family right. in regards to salvation. Yeah, that's right. So. Yeah, um, the, the word for household in Greek was oikos, and it would involve, um, it could involve the elderly that you have living with you, it could involve children, it could involve servants, and stuff like that. And uh, it does seem to be the case that the jailer, being sort of the head of his household, that was significant because it's like, you know, the way that they viewed faith is like, what, what are we going to raise our children to believe as facts? Right? So they didn't just believe in this sort of like privatized faith mm -hmm. as distinct from what we really believe about the physical world. So I think it's significant that he's the head of the household. Now, interestingly, with Lydia, she owns the house. 
She seems to have been a widow or an inheritor of some kind, but even she and her household is baptized as well. So um, I, don't, I, I don't think um, if there was a servant who was like, I don't believe this, I don't want this, or like an elderly person, like, no, like, that they would just be like, we're going to baptize you anyway, or something like that. Um, but the question, I think the question of, of, of whether or not they would have had their kids enter, enter that yoke, enter the, the, the community, and raise them to understand this faith, of course, they would have viewed it as being necessary for, the, for them to own that faith for themselves later on. You know? that, that faith was so critical. Um, but uh, but I, I, I feel like it's likely, based on the way that they're defining household, and based on the way that they understood proselyte baptism, to say that that would extend to, um, to the children as well. Um, let me just say one last word about this last paragraph we didn't talk about, because um, the magistrates eventually circle back to Paul, and they say, um, uh, okay, you can let these guys go. We sort of probably punished them enough. And at this point, Paul does something really unexpected. Because he's like, no. <laughs> No, they flogged us publicly, and, and now they want to just sort of excuse us quietly and tell us to leave? No, tell them to come here and lead us and escort us out publicly, because what, well, why, why would Paul do this? Some of you guys might be wondering, oh, okay, this is sort of weird, because there's this, there's this sort, of, um, sort of self-defense, this using of citizenship that isn't that common, but Paul seems to kind of say, all right, you guys didn't know this, or maybe you weren't listening when me and Silas told you that we were Roman citizens. Now, Roman citizens legally were not allowed to be flogged in that kind of way. So this was a disgrace. It was a miscarriage of justice. Now, I think what's going on here is that they're concerned about the reputation of the church that they're leaving behind. You know, is this the kind of thing that's involved with these kind of Python-esque kind of cults? No. Is this the kind of thing where you're just sort of troublemakers and the people who bring it, they're just the kind of people who get thrown into prison? No, he wanted a public vindication of the reputation of this early church. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of, um, in a way, it's the first sit-in, right? And, and Paul is a, you know, it's, it's funny because even back then, people would apologize to somebody based on political pressure. Isn't that interesting? That's not a new phenomenon. And so they apologized. Oh, we're sorry about that. Because they knew that Paul could appeal, politically appeal, to the Romans, and they would have to come under serious questioning for not taking their citizenship seriously. I think that's what's going on here. There's a protective measure against the church and a sort of utilizing of the sort of um, you know, what, what is Caesar's um, for the sake of, of advancing what is God's? Amen. One last question, yeah. You know, um, I think there's some ambiguity based on the text whether all the prisoners um, were released um, from their chains or just Paul and Silas or whoever might have been with him. It seems upon first reading that all the prisoners, like everybody in the prison, their shackles came off. Um, but then that's never alluded to. And like, you know, the, the jailer never goes back and talks about them. So it's sort of the initial verbiage makes it sound like everyone was released. But the rest of the story makes it sound like it was just Paul and Silas. It just seems to be kind of textually unclear. So that's why I didn't comment on that. Yeah. 
Well, let me just summarize a little bit. We've had a half sermon and half conversation. I really like opening it up for your comments. You guys are close readers of the text. It's good. Um, We just noticed, um, first off, that considering the geography, that they walked 400 miles on foot and chartered a boat because of what they felt like the Holy Spirit was calling them to do. That has radical implications for the kind of relationship that we're supposed to have with God. The kind of way that we are to respond to Him as Father. We talked about how in this passage, there's sort of this answer to this Jewish male prayer at the time. You know, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, I'm not a woman. And this passage is like, oh really? Gentile? Slave? Woman? These are, these are the constituent members of this new movement, right? of this new church, so it's a beautiful thing. And we just uh, we talked a little bit about um, you know, the, the separation of light and darkness. The important distinction there. We talked about their rejoicing in suffering. And we talked about their desire to vindicate this early church movement from things that could be said against it. Let me close in prayer. And we'll go right to the prayers of the people. Father in heaven, we thank you for this text Um, These vibrant, beautiful stories. Um, There's parts that are confusing about them that we sort of wonder about or think you might be saying this through it, but it's it's tricky. And we just thank you for um, actually the complexity of your word, which causes us to wrestle and try to hold on to you in the midst of our wrestling. And um, Lord, we pray that as we read your word, you would lead us into truth and you would show us how to begin to live that out, how to begin to walk that out. So that if you want to speak something to us by your Holy Spirit, um, we're ready for that. We're ready to obey that too, Lord. In all these things, I just ask that we would learn to trust you and trust your good intentions for us. To trust your good intentions for the community and your good intentions for this culture. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.